It's episode 92 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Brett Seymour. Diving the Podcast is a weekly all-about-diving podcast for everyone. Whether you explore the oceans as a snorkeler, scuba diver, free diver, or tech diver, Dive In has something for you. The show is filled with diving news, feature interviews with guests from around the world, interesting dive topics, and ocean advocacy. Visit DiveInPod.com to find more about the show, past guests, and our Patreon. Hi, everyone. I'm April. I'm Amit, and we're trimming things out this week on DecoStop. I'm Justin. We're talking about the Yonoguni Monument on my diving bucket list. And we're the hosts of Dive in the Podcast. Before we start today's episode, I'd like to thank you, the listeners. Thank you for tuning in every week. Your support encourages us to keep going and make a bigger and better podcast. Speaking of making awesome podcasts, last week we had a chance to sit down with Michael Schwinghammer. That was a great episode and a lot of fun nerding out over uh, photogrammetry stuff uh, as I as I may or may not get to do in this episode as well. Mm-hmm. Well, foreshadowing is quite the thing, Justin, when you're <laughs> in the um, time machine of yeah. <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it was great to have Mike on the show. And obviously, like his diving passion comes through and uh, so does his uh, his interest in the photogrammetry. And it, and it was really kind of cool to uh, to have a local guy again back on the show. So yeah, I quite mm-hmm. enjoyed that. Yeah, it was sad to uh, miss that one, especially with a, a local... Nova Scotian and you know fellow dive buddy but uh, mm. yeah I look forward to listening to it once the edit's all done because we're <laughs> yep, in podcast yeah. time soon That's right soon April <laughs> you'll, yes. you'll get to hear it soon and uh, obviously uh, you find folks listening at home haven't heard the golden tones of Nick Winkler on tonight he had an emergency pop up and had to run out and help a friend so uh, open arms well with Nick and uh, I'm sure it is we'll see him next week on the show yes but tonight on the show uh we have brett seymour brett is the deputy chief and audiovisual production specialist with the u.s national park surface submerged resources center he spent a career participating in incredible projects that aim to support the protection preservation public access and interpretation of submerged resources both in the u.s and internationally welcome to the podcast brett thanks for joining us Thank you for having me. Uh, we're happy to have you. How are you doing today? Uh, doing well. Doing well, yeah. That's great to hear. Uh, doing well up here. We're all in Nova Scotia. Uh, trying to stay warm. Mitt's got a toque on. Uh, I've got a sweater on. It's, uh, <laughs> it's cold today. Uh, but I'm just talking about the weather because Nick's not here tonight. And he always hates <laughs> us talking about say. the weather. So uh, <laughs> we officially start your interview in a moment here, Brett. But before that, I imagine you're familiar with, uh, with Dan, the Divers Alert Network. Yeah, they are uh, They're looking for donations. It's the end of the year, and Dan's asking for support from the dive community to help fund their operations. Dan lets you even choose how your donations are used. There's a fund to support local chambers, like your local to you dive chamber or uh, recompression chamber, uh, to support their hotline that's been running 24-7 for 40 years. And there's a general fund that can allow your donation to go whatever is needed uh, and more. And if you're in the U.S., you donate 100 bucks and you get a cool t-shirt and you do that before January 31st. And um, it's even a tax-deductible donation if you make that donation. So yeah, hit the show notes and find the link there because uh, it's a great cause. I know I'm a member and a, and a instructor for Dan, but uh, always good to support them because they do such an awesome job. 
Yeah, I'll agree. I think I tend to do the same thing. Uh, I think even this this year without traveling, um, mm-hmm. or this year, last year and this year, I guess, uh, without really traveling, I still kind of maintain that uh, Dan membership because I do think they were doing some good research. And, you know, I mean, it's one of these ones where uh, who else is really looking out for divers specifically, and they do do a great job of it. So, yeah, hopefully we can get some support charmed up. Well, it's a, it's an organization you don't think you need until you need, right? I've uh, been a Dan yeah. member mm-hmm. for, for probably over 20 years, Dan instructor as well. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, from a remote island uh, off the coast of Greece, when I thought I might have had a decompression incident calling up that hotline, uh, mm-hmm. there's no better people to talk to to get that reassurance whether you are or or, or not uh, affected mm-hmm. in uh, uh, absolutely a, a top-notch quality group for sure. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. And I'm hoping I'm oh. never going to have to use them. But like you said, it's, uh, <laughs> I guess that's why they call it insurance, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for the news today. It's time to dive in with Brett Seymour. Brett, where are you from? Well, I grew up uh, near the coast of New Hampshire. So uh, not quite exactly opposite of where you guys are, but, you know, a, a little ways away. Yeah. Not too bad. Not too far. And growing up on the coast, you're obviously connected to the water, but what is a strong early memory you have? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, as an underwater photographer, I get asked that quite a bit. And, and mm-hmm. actually it's, it, it really does pinpoint back to one thing. I have an uncle who, uh, I think just turned 85. He's still an active lobsterman off the coast of Maine. Yeah. Um, and, uh, as a young kid, I used to spend my summers, um, uh, in, in the Gulf of Maine on his boat and just being fascinated with, uh, with what he was bringing up in the traps. And I used to stand in the gunnel and, and just like dream of, you know, uh, of the starfish. And if we were lucky, we'd catch a dogfish or, you know, some yeah. sort of other thing that he of course was completely disinterested in as, as a lobsterman. <laughs> uh, but I found completely fascinating and, uh, and just was mesmerized by that. And, and that kind of started an early, um, an early fascination with the sea and the underwater world. And uh, as a kid, also, my, uh, my parents had a, a camp on a, on a large lake in New Hampshire called Lake Winnipesaukee. Um, oh, yeah. I used to spend hours trying to figure out how to stay underwater. You know, we would do these crazy things with garden hoses, like, like many people have, um, yeah. you know, those of us who, who are drawn to the underwater. I used to, I remember I used to take five gallon buckets and turn them upside down with cinder blocks and weight them. And, <laughs> Uh, I would dive off the dock and come up underneath the block and I would freak everybody out. You know, my parents would go crazy. And where's Brad? Of course, being a young kid, I didn't think that that was, there was anything wrong with that. Being a parent now, I could see the the heart attack written all over that. But I, I just always, uh, I don't know. I was always drawn to it. I found myself, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough. I will say to remember Cousteau, uh, mm-hmm. my Cousteau was, a, was an old frail man. He wasn't a young gentleman. Um, yeah. But I remember watching him being drawn. I was an early adopter to the old skin diving magazine in the 80s when everything was neon green and just ridiculously, uh, you know, horrible big hair and, and, and latex everywhere. Um, yeah. It was just always a, always a draw. And I, I, I decided at an early age that, uh, that it was enough of a draw that I wanted to, to make a crack at it and, and see if I could make it a career. So that's how it started, I guess. That's pretty cool, actually. I, I really uh, like the idea of how you were freaking out your parents there with the uh, with the bucket <laughs> turned upside down. Like that's kind of right up my alley. So, yeah. but uh, aside from this uh, business here, you're spending a lot of time in and under the water. Um, you didn't really get into diving, I understand, until university. Right. So, was it something like diving, being like scuba diving? I guess. Uh, was it something that you always knew then from that time as a kid that you wanted to do or yeah. was that more connected to your film and TV sort of degree? 
No, it was actually early on. I, uh, you know, coming out of uh, out of high school, I I talked to a Navy recruiter. Um, I thought about going into the Navy to be a Navy diver. Um, I, I quickly realized that I didn't. I didn't. A, I didn't really know if I could handle someone yelling at me all the time. That was just my my preconceived notion of what the right. Navy was at the time. <laughs> and then also, you know, talking to the recruiter, they couldn't say, yes, yeah, you'll be a diver. You know, it, it was mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know, we'll see. And I, I just had this thing in the back of my head, like, you know, I, I'm not really sure if I wanted to, we'll see, you know, I, I can <laughs> see myself doing a lot of things that I'm not interested in for the U S military and, uh, diving would be, you know, probably I, I might get there, but there wasn't a guarantee. So mm-hmm. after, um, after kind of giving up on the Navy, so to speak, I actually almost went to the, a place called the Ocean Corporation, which is out of Texas. Uh, they were based in Houston. I'm not sure if they're still around, but I was looking to be a medic, a dive medic, or mm. at the time they had a, a nuclear diver, which was, which sounded probably more glamorous than it was. Um, <laughs> but there was a, it was a two-year degree program to be kind of an associate's degree. And it was really, you know, you, you were going to go into the patch, the oil patch. And mm-hmm. um, that seemed like a, a pretty lucrative and, and a pretty interesting career path, but not real stable past, uh, you know, a young age. So I decided rather uh, sensibly to go to a liberal arts school, did a degree in, in television and film production, but always, honestly, always kind of thinking of marrying the two. And when I was at university, um, for a PE elective, there was a, a, a diving course, you know, and this was back, you know, I, I don't mean to say back in the day, like I'm some sort of ancient individual, but, you know, back in the day when, when, when the university had a diving program as a NAWI program, actually, but it lasted the whole semester. So we spent weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, in the classroom and in the pool and all of that. So I took it as a PE elective and, and they had to drag me out of the pool. Um, I took that one semester, second semester, they actually offered an underwater photography, uh, which my, uh, my friends and colleagues at university made complete fun of me for taking. They thought that was the most useless thing. And to each and every one of them, I look back and say, told you so. Uh, it was a brilliant <laughs> career move, turns out. Yeah. Um, so that that was kind of the legitimacy of of kind of figuring out what I could do. And of course, you know, there was no there was no job, there was no career path. There was just a passion for diving. Um, and that's but that's kind of where it started. That kind of practical knowledge of of instruction combined with you know a passion that was really young uh, young as a kid. Uh, where they kind of met was at university, and then mm-hmm. that's when I really kind of had the autonomy and, and decided to try to do something about it. Very cool. Yeah. So that's what I was kind of wondering, um, is if, if you had a, had this, um, you know, underwater photography, underwater videography plan in your head for, for post-university or, you know, were you just like, I'm going to go work in TV and film and, you know, make the big bucks and die for fun. No, I did. I always wanted to marry him. So yeah. one of my semesters, I went to London, actually. My my dream job was to work for Natural History at BBC Underwater. Um, and, uh, it, you know, when I got to London in, in, in the early 90s, uh, the BBC had just collapsed. All of the in-house producers had just been fired. There was a million and one production houses. So it was not the time to try to get into freelance there. So that quickly mm-hmm. fizzled. But there was always a desire to marry the passion with a career. I had some very, you know, influential people in my life that said, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And I thought that sounded pretty good. And even though I didn't have the knowledge to figure out how to make it work, I, I really always kind of felt like it was worth it to try. And, you know, I I think everybody has to point back and you have to look at your support system. I mean, I had a, I had a tremendously supportive family that, 
I mean, they, they certainly didn't write blank checks for me to do and live my passion by any means, but they were always there to encourage me. And my mother, you know, it took a decade at least with a, with a full position that she finally knew what I did. She, she had no idea, you know, her son was doing something underwater. She didn't know if it was, she just would, I, I honestly, I think she just told everybody I work for national geographic, you know, that was just the easiest <laughs> thing to say, which I, you know, I, I was fine with that. I mean, it's, right. it's better than, you know, you know, he, he's homeless and doesn't have a job. So, um, and, and, and to be fair, I had done a couple jobs early in my career with geographic. So there was, there was a reason for that, right. but the, the whole connection between the national park service and geographic was lost on my mother, which, you know, again, <laughs> no problem. Um, so there's a lot of people where I grew up probably thinking I've, I've been spending a lot of my time working for the geographic around the world. But I'll take it, you know, no yeah, worries. That works. That works. Yeah. Well. So when did you learn about the National Park Services uh, Submerged Resources Center? Yeah, so the Park Service is an interesting thing. I mean, for those of us who dive in the national parks, we, we really believe it's kind of the best kept, kept secret. Um, hmm. I didn't know anything about the National Park Service. I had no idea there was an underwater component of the parks. I had no idea there was a Submerged Resources Center. Um, I was actually researching a film project in London connected with an underwater archaeology over some random thing who put me in touch with a, uh, an archaeologist who worked for the Park Service. Um, I called him and, and, and got him. He was actually, ironically, the deputy chief of the Submerged Resources Center, which is my job currently, um, you know, some 25, almost 25 years ago. Um, I talked to him and, you know, it all lined up that he had a project going in a place called the Dry Tortugas National Park, which is in, uh, in South Florida off the coast of Key West. So here I was in film school. Um, I was researching a film. I'd already made a contact with someone who actually had a, a real world job doing this. And this gentleman, Larry, his name was Larry. Um, he said, Hey, we're looking to staff a project in South Florida. Uh, how would you like to come work for us for the summer? And I thought, man, this career thing is simple. Like, you know, you go to school and <laughs> you make a couple calls and you get your dream job right out. So, right. um, he asked me to send him a reel so back then it was all VHS, you know, start, yeah. stop, pause, and, and horrible quality uh, looking yeah. back. But I sent him a reel, and I'll never forget this. I went to the, to the, to the post office um, to send him this reel, uh, this VHS tape. And I, on the addressed envelope, I said, you know, National Park Service, Santa Fe, California. And the, the guy across the desk from me said, well, I'm sorry, sir, there's no Santa Fe, California. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. There's got to be a Santa Fe, California, because there's an underwater team there. I'm trying to get a job with, and they have to be in California because, you know, and I had these visions of, you know, owning a Jeep and, you know, <laughs> driving around in Southern California, working as an underwater photographer, all those things. And he said, no, there's a, there's actually a Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I said, well, that can't be right. He says, no, this is the right zip. <laughs> so off went the package. And then I soon discovered that this underwater program for the National Park Service actually was based in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which... Um, it is really in the middle of nowhere in terms of water. Uh, there yeah. is no water around. So that was kind of an anomaly. So that's kind of how I got connected with the park service. Um, from, from there, I mean, just one step further, that job fell through instantly. I got a call back <laughs> or a letter, rejection letter, which unfortunately I write many of those every month to willing or interested parties and, you know, yeah. who want a job with us. Um, thank you for your interest. We'll keep your resume on file. You know, all of the typical token kind of boilerplate. Um, but the job was kind of rescinded and I was really, uh, you know, to be honest, I was mad. So I would call this guy, call Larry. I call him every week and he was never in town. I thought he was totally blowing me off. Um, now having that job, I know he was never in town because he was always traveling. Right. Um, 
but I, I would call him every week. And finally, after months, um, the, the, the secretary who worked there, I think just said, Larry, you, you gotta, you gotta talk to this kid. This is, he's driving me crazy. So <laughs> I finally got him on the phone and said, you know, Hey, you're making a mistake. I could do great things for your program. You're making a big mistake, not hire me. And I think, I think that kind of surprised him. And he's like, well, we can't pay you, but we can, you know, we'll give you food and, and we'll give you a place to sleep if you want to come down and fill the cylinders. And I said, I'm in. So I went down, uh, I, you know, I drove to Florida. I waited for a call. Of course, no cell phones. I waited at my friend's house for weeks and weeks. Finally, the call came. I went out to the dry tortugas and spent uh, a brief uh, three or four months out there as, you know, as an intern. And during mm-hmm. the course of that particular um, project, the individual, Larry, said, you know, you've done a really good job. If you ever, maybe we have some contract work. If you ever find yourself in Santa Fe, um, you know, maybe we'll be able to find something. Well, of course, I heard I had a job. So the <laughs> ship landed. I jumped in my car. I drove from Key West, Florida to Santa Fe, New Mexico, showed up at the office, said Larry gave me a job. And everyone was <laughs> completely beside themselves. Um, they didn't have a job for me. So seven years later, they finally hired me. I worked a series of freelance positions, uh, contract. I basically did anything they asked for about seven years until um, until they finally, I guess, got tired of me hanging around, or I proved myself, or one of the two, and uh, and uh, they gave me a staff position as a as a producer and underwater photographer with the National Park Service. So kind of a, a random story. That's pretty cool, though. How did that feel like seven years? Were you just like completing the marathon or was it just beginning? Oh, it was just beginning. I, I realized that that there was what the Park Service thought my job should be and actually what my job could be, right? So when I was hired as a photographer, I, you know, I, I really felt there could be more. I could I could do more for the Park Service. I could, you know, kind of increase interpret education and, and outreach. And, and the big thing was technology. You know, most people uh, most people don't assume or associate, especially the U.S. National Park Service, with any type of you know cutting edge science or optical design or engineering. So I kind of set out to change that single handedly with camera systems and, and working underwater, which I've spent a fair amount of time kind of figuring out how we can how we can do cool things underwater for the American public and show them you know their underwater national parks. Hmm. And so I guess as we're looking at that, and you know, you, you mentioned that uh, part of it was figuring out. Uh, ways to show people uh, the the underwater parks is that really the the purpose of of this uh, submerged resource center or is there another reason why the submerged yeah. resource center actually exists? Well, the interesting thing about the National Park Service, it's you know many people in the past have said it's it's America's best idea. You know, if, if you look at if you look at these lands set aside, it and you know quite honestly, Parks Canada has a tremendous park service as well but if mm-hmm. you look at the model in in you know in the european model the rich own the best you know they have mm-hmm. the best landscapes and the best forests and fields so when it comes to this nation's kind of genesis in setting aside those places for the public it's it's an incredibly revolutionary idea mm-hmm. um, but the park service has a man, has a mandate to preserve and protect unimpaired for future generations that's a fancy way of saying there's a lot of amazing stuff in our nation's history that that one agency has to be responsible for. So just like the Park Service, you know, maintains, uh, you know, the Yellowstones and the Yosemites of the world, they're also responsible for what's underwater. So our office, the Submerged Resources Center, our our mission really is to help parks understand what lies beneath the surface. So if that's uh, if that's shipwrecks or airplanes or coral reefs or any number of things, and, and really 
probably the most kind of poignant um, discussion or, or existence of why the Submerged Resources Center exists. Actually, I, I just returned from Pearl Harbor last week, and the USS Arizona, which is there in Pearl Harbor, uh, we just celebrated the, the commemorated the 80th uh, anniversary of the Japanese attack on America. Um, mm-hmm. But there you have a national park that was established in a superintendent who came in and said, I know nothing about a World War II battleship sunk in Pearl Harbor. I, you know, I know zero about it. So that's kind of what we do. Our office comes in, we, you know, we look at what's there, what's happening to what's there. We're, we're mapping operations through underwater archaeology, uh, imaging and photography through, um, you know, underwater optics, and basically sharing that with the public. So that has been repeated time and time again throughout the service. So really, the my office is responsible for not only the resource management or the preservation of those things underwater, but also educating them to the public, both from a diving public and opening those up for, for recreational diving, um, or for, um, you know, places like Pearl Harbor, um, showcasing what's there because the public isn't allowed to go there. Right. So, so it's kind of, uh, on our, um, on our watch to make sure, you know, the public, the international public understands the significance of, of what's underwater the touchstone that is the USS Arizona and, and why it's important to our nation and to world history as well. So that's kind of an overview of what the Submerged Resources Center does. It's really just an extension underwater of the National Park Service's missions. Mm-hmm. It's That's a pretty tremendous mandate, though, when you get right down to it. I mean, what you're doing and, and you think about the, you know, the size of the United States and then there's also you know, the Hawaiian Islands that I, I think of that I always, I think probably everybody at some point wants to visit. Um, but, you know, when you look at that, I guess, what what's it like logistically managing that from your position to ensure that you're delivering on, on that mandate? Well, it's a lot of travel. Uh, I'll say that. Um, you know, uh, we only have the, the Submerged Resources Center is an eight-person, eight-staff-member uh, operation. Right, so wow. those are eight people that go out in the field. Uh, several, several underwater archaeologists, a couple of photographers, and an operations and logistics guy. Um, but our mandate, you know, in any given year, we might be in South Florida, we'll be in the South Pacific, in Guam or Saipan. We have units out there. We might be at Acadia uh, up in the Northeast. We might be in Channel Islands out in the Pacific West. And there's a lot of work we've been doing in the, you know, in in the Great Lakes and the Intermountain region. So. Um, just a couple months ago, I was at Yellowstone doing a project there at Yellowstone Lake and Shoshone Lake. Um, so geographically, it's massive, um, which I find exciting as a diver. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a, a diving podcast. So I yeah. mean, as a diver, <laughs> you can't ask for a better gig in terms of diversity. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The National Park Service has a diving program. We We run about 250 divers. So parks have independent programs within their, you know, within their boundaries. And those, those divers might be coral reef biologists or ecologists, and, and they're very specialized, very talented people. They work in their park. Um, mm-hmm. But our program is a little bit unique in that we work in almost all the parks. So on any given day, we might be dry suit diving with heated thermals up at Isle Royal in Lake Superior. And then the next week, literally, we might be down in, in Biscayne National Park, uh, south of Miami, or Dry Tortuga, south of Key West, west of Key West, um, you know, in, in rash guards in a, in a three mil. So that diversity in diving coupled with the mandate, both open circuit, uh, closed circuit, mixed gas, all of those things really makes uh, for a highly specialized team of, uh, of really some pretty talented people. And everyone who works for the SRC 
Um, you know, we don't consider ourselves divers, professional divers per se. I mean, diving is a tool I use to do underwater photography. Like I said, we have underwater archaeologists. Um, but the diving has to be really second nature. And, you know, we, we do a fair amount of training. We're very fortunate to have uh, a management behind us that, that understands the occupational risk. So our equipment is good. Our equipment is sound. And, and uh, it's, it's a big diversity of diving. And it's a, it's a huge geographic area in terms of trying to work projects across the entire national park system, for sure. Wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. Uh, and well, I mean, as you as you're talking about it, like I'm just thinking in my head, like I'm so jealous of the the access to all of these places and the travel. And <laughs> you know, I, I have this like romanticized version of it now going on that it's just the most incredible job in the world. And so, can I quit and come work for you um, <laughs> now? <laughs> yeah, I, I get uh, that. I get that a lot. I mean, you know, that. and I don't. I honestly don't shy away from a lot of people say, "Wow, you have an amazing job," and I say, "Yes, I do." Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate over the career to have, and it's not just the diving, it's, it's the diving in the reason that we're diving, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, equipment manufacturers, uh, magazines, they love what we do. They love the products that I generate because we're working, you know, I, I don't, I don't go to the Caymans and do profiles on resorts or, you know, have girls in bikinis doing setup shots on corals. Like the stuff that I do is all, is all, it's all work. It's all biologists, you know, trying to mitigate coral disease. It's archaeologists trying to understand, you know, our nation's history through, you know, a a British warship and and an excavation Mm. there. Or so there's a, it's almost like it's a documentary kind of photography in that my job is to tell the story of the work and the mission of the park service through imagery. Um, but it is, I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to you. It's an amazing gig. And I've, the the park service uh, has opened so many doors that have both maintained inside park service operations and then internationally and doing other projects outside the park service um, that it's been an incredible career for sure. And, and on the career side, we, we, I started a while ago kind of shying away from these career fairs. You know, people always wanted to have us go to high school and, you know, and, and talk about working for yeah. the park service and they'd say, Oh, you know, how, how can I get your job? And it was a little disheartening to say, well, you can't because there's like one of me or two of us. Um, and, and I'm not going anywhere for a while. So I'm sorry to kind of, you know, tell you all these great stories and show you all these great pictures and then say, you you can't do that. So what we try to do is we encourage people in the park service, you know, there's a tremendous amount of diving opportunities that might not be a photographer for our program, but there's a lot of resource management, a lot of coral biologists, underwater archaeologists, ecologists, coastal geologists. There's a lot of science going on in the parks. Yeah. And a lot of that is, you know, is happening underwater. So that's kind of where we try to steer kind of the career-minded people um, mm-hmm. in those directions for the park service, not necessarily to come and work for our program because it is such a small program. Yeah, right. And so one of the things that, uh, you know, as you talk about this and the conservation side of it and you're talking about the working with scientists and biologists as you guys look to preserve, um, you know, whether it be coral reefs or wrecks or, you know, artifacts that you're, you're looking at. Uh, one thing that I wonder about is you coming in conflict uh, with other, either systems of government uh, or whether you're coming in conflict with, you know, uh, big business and how, how does a person in your position navigate that? Because we do see like, there's always a call, uh, you know, for, uh, whether it's for climate change uh, work or whether it's for like conservation efforts, there's always a call that puts uh, those folks in conflict 
with these uh, agencies that sort of tend to control the big business of the world. And you're in a unique position where you are backed by, you know, the federal government. And so do you end up in those positions? And if so, how do you navigate them? Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question. Um, I, we don't encounter that a whole lot. And, and I think it's because, like you say, I, I do work for the federal government. And when I say that, I don't mean like, you know, we run around in, in Black Hawk helicopters and in darkened out, you know, black <laughs> suburbans and, you know, kind of mission impossible kind of stuff. Um, but there's something, there's something to be said for working for the, for the federal government. But to take that one step further, there's something to be said for working for the National Park Service. If I had a job with, you know, the IRS or, you know, some other federal agency that really nobody likes, to be perfectly mm-hmm. blunt, I mm-hmm. think the worldview would be slightly different. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have yet to run into to a vast majority of people in this country or around the world who don't think the National Park Service is doing some pretty cool stuff. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, generationally, everybody kind of remembers a park experience. You know, everybody kind of wants to see Yellowstone and whether yeah. they identify that with, you know, the nation's lead preservation agency as the National Park Service, that, that doesn't really matter. But there's a lot of opportunity that working for the National Park Service offers and opens up. In fact. I think really what I've seen is kind of the exact opposite of what you mentioned. It doesn't really put us in conflict with business or industry. A lot of times I've had tremendous success leveraging our Mm. brand and our Mm -hmm. organization with industry. So, you know, like again, on the USS Arizona, we've had hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of work done in the scientific field with you know, corporations like Autodesk or um, Cygnus or these other ROV companies or, you know, places that are interested in the underwater world um, and are willing to partner with the Park Service because, you know, the National Park Service Arrowhead, our little branding, um, is pretty significant. And it, and it resonates It resonates a certain amount of goodwill and, and, and you know, positive vibe, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. across this country, certainly, and, and across what people think of, of what good good agencies do in in the federal government. So I, I think that I think that's probably a, a, a more inline answer to that is I, I've actually seen just the opposite with being able to leverage my position inside the Park Service with opportunities that may not be available to a freelancer for sure. Um, right. You know, you mentioned the word conflict. Uh, interestingly enough, I think the biggest conflict I've had over my over my time is is kind of in, in, in relationship to climate change. I mean, I don't you know I don't want to get all uh, all ethereal and sciency, but the biggest conflict I've had in my career is seeing the resources, the coral reefs, go away. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you roll into a place like the Virgin Islands, uh, I mm-hmm. was doing a film down there many years ago, and and trying to showcase you know the underwater wonders of the Virgin Islands. And then you get down there and everything's dead. You know, the, there's a bleaching event or the staghorn's all gone. Or, you know, at Biscayne, same thing. There's reefs that I shot 25 years ago that I would go back to. I went back to last year trying to recreate that image and it was gone. So as an underwater photographer, you know, nobody really wants to show pictures of dead coral because that's not pretty. But mm. it's kind of the reality. So it's been a little bit of a conflict or a struggle, if you will, to be an underwater photographer highlighting these, you know, these places set aside, these iconic places that are supposed to be the best in the park service and seeing that resource, those, that, that problem, you know, that, that bleaching event or that global warming or that climate change really shift. And and to see the die off has 
honestly been more of a conflict to me than any kind of corporate or outside influence that I've had in throughout my career. And so do you think that you can, I guess, having seen that, like you said, that's a sobering thing to see. And it's something that a lot of us have talked about. We've talked about on the show before. Yeah. From where you sit, uh, you know, do you see that there's hope to be able to reverse that? And I'm not trying to pla- paint a, you know, a, a bleak picture here, just yeah. a realistic one. Like you're a person, like you said, yeah. for 25 years, I've yeah. watched this happen. Can, you know, is there a chance that we can fix this? Yeah. So I, you know, you're asking me, I ask the same thing to all of my coral friends. I have a bunch of friends that work all through the Caribbean and the Pacific, you know, what? And, and I ask them the same question, you know, can we do anything about it? Um, I I think we can, I I think, you know, when people are coming up through grad school and and trying to make a difference and they're all eager and and excited to change the world, you know, my advice to them is, is science is great, but you have to have science communication, you know, the, the ability to tell your story. I mean, nobody, nobody cares about anything until they can see it. I mean, looking back at, you know, horrific events in our, in our nation's history, you know, BP oil spill, you know, nobody cared about the BP oil spill until oil started washing up and in, in killing ducks and, and killing the wetlands. Same thing with Exxon Valdez. I mean, mm. these, these things that happen, these kind of environmentally charged or environmental disasters doesn't ping the consciousness until images, it, until it impacts somebody. So the fact that so many of the world's ocean or so many of the world depends on the world's oceans, and that is, you know, that is being deteriorated at such a great rate. Those in power, you know, that might be in Chicago or, or San Francisco or what have you, they don't rely on that and they, they're really disconnected. So I don't know about reversing the change. I, I'm more interested in showcasing what's going on, right? So mm-hmm. more interested in, in, in bringing that to light. It's, it's difficult mm-hmm. these days with, with so many channels and avenues and streaming and, you know, how do you get a voice I'm fortunate to have the platform of the National Park Service, but even that, the pie is split up in so many hundreds of thousands of pieces. So I, I think there is, I think there's a lot of, I think I've seen a shift over the past, the past three or four years with, with people understanding these large events, like in the, you know, in the Great Barrier Reef or in, in the Caribbean and it, it, here in the States, it's, it's really about stony, uh, stony coral tissue loss disease and, and seeing that kind of move through and decimate reef tracks. Mm-hmm. But I don't really think people are going to care until it starts impacting them on an economic scale. You know, when the fisheries start collapsing and mm-hmm. and, and people can't do the things that they want to do, um, I think that's when it'll that'll take effect. And you know, I'm just trying to do my little part to showcase that. You know, I, I have a slug on the end of my email that says science isn't finished until it's communicated, and and I really mm-hmm. believe that. You know, I think that whether you're a freelance shooter who's interested in ecology or, or some sort of environmental aspect. Um, we have a job to do in the underwater community to both communicate that science or that mm. preservation message, meaning just conservation. Like we got to pay attention to what's going on. Yeah. That's incredible. When you're talking about all of that, one of the things that pops to mind to me, and, and you mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, you have some amazing footage of reefs and the conditions that they, they were in 20, 25 years ago. And I always consider from the scientific perspective, um, you know, the idea of uh, pre-post studies, right? And can that be translated into, say, documentary filmmaking where you're able to take people back to those reefs based on the photography that you had or the, the videography that you've done and say, you know, hey, 
here is the change. Like this is what has happened over the years. And this is the same reef that I would have dove on. And here's what it looked like then to now. And tying that into here are the economic fallouts that have occurred as a result of it. Right. So I don't know if you talk about science communication and, and I think we've definitively had a few guests on here who, uh, who are actually science communicators. Uh, mm-hmm. And to me, it seems like we're in a place where the, the public consumes such a huge amount of information on any given day that literature is falling by the wayside, which is tragic. But at the same time, unless we can deliver them something in small chunks in a video platform, uh, I don't. I, I question how we're going to be able to get there. So do you see pre-post videography or documentary making as being an avenue towards that? I, I do, but in my opinion, here's the thing. What's the hook? Like, what's going to mm-hmm. engage people, right? How do you get on a platform and how do you do something that will have the traction that you need to affect change? Because mm-hmm. everybody now is a photographer. Everybody's got an iPhone. Everybody can mm-hmm. put it in a case. Everybody can make a movie. Everybody can put it up on YouTube, right? So how do you, how do you set aside and, and how, do you, how do you navigate the static that is the online platform? I mean, uh, you know, I got to say, I'm jealous of the guys that were shooting back in the 80s and 90s because there was, you know, for a while, there's four networks. Mm-hmm. And if you could get on one of those four networks, you know, Cousteau or Jack Hanna or, you know, those people, you had an audience. Mm-hmm. Now, the budgets are down. Because there's just so many, there's so many streaming areas. There's so many slices of that pie. There's so many media consumption, and I think that, I think your point about literature being a thing of the past is true. I think we are a visual, a visual society now. But my fear, and, and this is, I, I apologize. Maybe this is going a little bit away from you know diving. But my fear is everything is so ephemeral. You know, we we flip through and we click through. I mean, you know, a TikTok generation is based on what a seven second or, you know, uh, it, it's like, it's so fast. And how can you, how can you communicate something in that mm-hmm. noise when it's just, it's onto the next, onto the mm-hmm. next, onto mm-hmm. the next. Right. Um, so I, I, again, in my position with the park service, one of the things that I am fortunate is, is we have an engaged audience that we try to reach. I mean, people who are following park service streams or visiting parks are, are perhaps some of the most educated visitors you could have. They're there for a reason. They've done some research. And really, it's our job to say, oh, well, you're interested in this particular park. Well, did you know that mm-hmm. there are shipwrecks here? Or did you know that the coral reefs are here? So I, I understand that kind of looking back, and I, and I know some successful people doing that. A, a friend of mine, David Dubolet for Geographic, has done some time, you know, kind of timestamp things, looking mm-hmm. back at work he's done in Australia and throughout the South Pacific. Um, and, you know, they'll make a splash and they might get some hit, some hooks, but, but what is, what is the tipping point that really affects people? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, because yeah. at some point you, you don't want to be preaching to the choir, right? You, you know, you don't want to have your, your content or your, uh, your view have you in an echo chamber of, you know, socially responsible, environmentally conscious individuals. Well, then, then you're just swapping stories. So right. how do you get outside of that, right? How do, you, how do you infiltrate, you know, the oil industry or the general public who lives in Kansas that, you know, why do I care about the oceans? Those mm-hmm. are, I think, the real strategies that, you know, young up-and-coming filmmakers and those that are far more savvy than I in the whole social media world, um, th- that's, that's their challenge, you know? The mm-hmm. long-form documentary is gone. Um, 
you know, BBC and, and the natural history units, they're still doing planet Earths at hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, and they're getting grave, rev- you know, rave reviews. But if you look at the discoveries, the sciences, the histories, I mean, those budgets are so thin, nobody's got time to wait for natural behavior in the, in the natural world on a, you know, $700 a day, you know, shoot rate. Mm-hmm. Um, it just isn't going to happen. So the quality has really decreased. The outlets have increased. The messaging has gotten confused. And there's just a lot of static to try to get any kind of messaging through. And it's, it's, it's disappointing in some ways because the messaging is it's really kind of a matter of life and death for a lot of people in, mm. in the ecosystem and, and how the oceans have, uh, you know, have declined. I, I early on, I, several years ago, I was fortunate enough to, to hear a, a talk, you know, kind of this concept of shifting baselines. Right. And, you know, the coral that my children will see is different from the coral that I saw as a kid. And the coral, if it's still around, is different from my kids. And yet you look at like the fishing industry, you'd think one of the people that would be kind of sounding the alarm bells, the, the loudest would be the fishing industry because they used to catch fish this big and now they don't exist. And now they're catching fish this small, but that's acceptable. Mm. Well, you know, times have changed. Well, it's really not that difficult to draw a line of why times have changed over fishing and over consumption and the commercialization of this. Like it, it's, it's not a rocket science kind of equation, right? But right. yet by and large, society is willing to accept that. Oh, back in the day, we used to catch tuna, you know, blah, blah, blah. They don't exist anymore. Well, we really mm-hmm. should be asking ourselves why, because it's, <laughs> it's not a natural selection thing. It's a complete man-made thing. So, mm, you know, right. to, to kind of come full circle to your question, I, I think there is still hope. I think the pressure is tremendous, though. You know, that's the one thing that we've never had before in society. We've always had ebbs and flows, I think, with climate, what I believe. But We've never had the population pressure. We've never had the overfishing pressure. We've never had the nutrient runoff, environmental runoff pressure. Um, that's the real challenge. And you're, you, the only way you're going to change that pressure is with, with public education and knowledge. And you know, it's, it's really hard to get that messaging through, even though everybody thinks information is everywhere. Mm-hmm. The problem is information is everywhere, right? So Right. Yeah. Oh, that's, a, that's a great answer. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for that. Brett, I think we'll take a quick break here and be right back with more. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. Remember, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcast or at podchaser.com. Reviews are one of the best ways to help others find the podcast. This episode of Dive in the Podcast is brought to you by Torpedo Rays Scuba. You can find them online at torpedorays.com. They've been teaching Canada how to dive for 25 years and are a proud sponsor of this podcast. If you're in Atlantic Canada and want to take a course or see the shop, stop in and see us in Dartmouth and check out the huge selection of scuba, apnea, surf gear, and much more. Dive tours are available for locals and visitors to experience all that our ocean playground has to offer. TorpedoRays.com has a vast selection of dive gear at unbeatable prices with free shipping available in Canada and quick shipping throughout North America. So visit TorpedoRays.com or stop in the shop and you might even see one of us there. Welcome back to Dive in the Podcast. We're speaking with Brett Seymour, the Deputy Chief and Audiovisual Production Specialist with the U.S. National Park Service Submerged Resource Center. So, Brett, I mean, we've been having a great conversation, and you did bring this up earlier on in, in the uh, in the discussion, but documentation of Pearl Harbor, the USS Arizona site, is probably 
one of the higher profile projects that the uh, that the SRC has taken on. Can you walk us through what you guys had to do in that uh, in that project? Yeah, so the Arizona is a special place. I mean, you know, in in the world history, um, I often tell people I've only met two people in my travels. There's the people who've been to Pearl Harbor and there's the people who want to go to Pearl Harbor. I've never met anyone who's indifferent about visiting the USS Arizona or at least acknowledging of, of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, you know, back in the, in the 80s, which I wasn't part of the Park Service then, it was an interesting question because nobody knew what was there. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the Navy had very little records of what was there. I mean, the Arizona on December 7th was, was struck in, and actually what happened is the keel was broken which is why it wasn't salvaged. I mean, there, there wasn't this kind of glorious, let's memorialize this site. Uh, you know, the United States was in the middle of World War II. They had to get everything up and, and, and fight back as quick as possible. The keel on the ship was broken, so it was left there to, to deal with later. Um, but the Navy really had very little knowledge of what was there. In fact, in 84, when the first dives by the National Park Service were done, um, the whole forward turret, which is the size of a Greyhound bus, was actually discovered as being on site. You know, the historical record had all of the 14-inch guns being salvaged and placed around Oahu, the island of Oahu, for coastal fortification. But yet here were these massive guns that could fire projectile, you know, 20 miles. Um, so really the idea of what was there was, was first and foremost in the park services mind. And, and, you know, as time goes on, we've moved from what's there to what's happening to what's there. We've looked at, you know, the preservation of the site through, uh, through all kinds of a whole host and in, in, in interdisciplinary look at the science and, you know, oil and, and microbiology. I mean, that's all the science of the site. I will say the Arizona has played a tremendous part in, in my career and in my personal life as well. Um, you know, I started going to Pearl Harbor when I was a young kid who who wanted a job with the National Park Service fresh out of film school. And I've been fortunate enough to go there, you know, over the past 20, almost 25 years. Um, and I've actually done more dives in the USS Arizona than any other place in my career of, you know, 25 years of the National Park Service. So wow. it, it's a place that has a real strong connection. Um, I've always felt it as a place from a photography standpoint that has the the greatest need, if you will, it's not open to recreational diving yet. It's still there, right? Um, you know, if you can imagine, you know, something in, in any nation's history and, and the touchstone, literal touchstone is still being there. I mean, the national park service is great about interpreting these sites, right? So, you know, there's these big, big marble stones at Gettysburg or, um, all of these things, but, you know, in Pearl Harbor, the, the site is still there. You can you can dive the decks of the Arizona and still see shoe soles and cooking pots and shaving kits and silverware um, because it's in an active military harbor that's closed to all diving. It's the level of preservation in in artifacts that are, it's like a museum. Um, aside from the museum aspect, there's also just a tremendous feeling of of peace. I, it's it's weird. A lot of people say, what's it like to dive the Arizona? And it's, it's, it's a unique experience because every dive is, is slightly different, if that makes sense. But every dive is equally humbling. I mean, you can be on the, uh, on the decks of the USS Arizona and, and doing whatever, do, art, mapping artifacts, taking photographs, what have you. And out of the corner of your eye, a site that you have been to hundreds of times in the past, um, you'll see something that you've never seen. And it happened to me last week. I, I'm not making this up. It happened to me last week. I was swimming in an area that I've been many, many, many times before. I looked down and there's a glass bottle um, that was, I, we believe it was hair tonic because inside of the glass 
bottle was a liquid. The, it, the bottle was closed. It was sealed. And there was something in there that was oily. It wasn't water. It wasn't seawater. It was, I, we believe, talking with the archaeologists and the curators, that it was a bottle of hair tonic that was you know, left over from one of the sailors in some of the cards. And you see something like that, and all of a sudden, you know, the work that you're doing, whatever that work is, mm-hmm. is just goes out the window, and you just stop. And, and you just, uh, so many times on that site, I've just paused um, and just thought about, you're actually swimming in a place where there's still a thousand sailors and Marines that are entombed inside that ship. It's the final resting place of that many people. It, it has the reverence of of a Arlington National Cemetery or you know any other great cemetery in nation's history, um, and it's a tremendous responsibility not only to to kind of comprehend that but to communicate it as well. It, it was one of the reasons why I I, I really you know trying to image a six hundred and eight foot battleship in six foot chunks because the visibility is quite poor. Um, why I really. I really brokered very hard and, and put a, a lot of energy into a, a book um, on the USS Arizona. And this is not a, a plug to sell books or anything like that. But I really felt that there was an opportunity there for a site that people really needed to see what was still there. Um, and I had the access and I believe the, the technical or artistic ability to tell that story. So for the 75th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, myself and a colleague of mine put together a book called Beneath Pearl Harbor. And really, that is just a a visual representation of some of the sites and things that I've been able to experience and passing that on to a diving and non-diving public as well, just to communicate the importance of a site like that. Sounds like a, well, really like a life-changing kind of a a project that you've dealt with throughout your time. And I'm I'm curious just a little bit about the the special considerations, because you you make mention of so many things that are involved there, the interdisciplinary science components of it. Uh, You know, the new discoveries as you go through there, the the need to respect the integrity uh, of the boat and the fact that it it is effectively, you know, the final resting place place of uh, these, these brave soldiers. And so I was wondering, like, what exactly uh, are, are the other factors that you guys had to bring into it to ensure uh, that, that really when, when you preserve a site like this, you communicate those things well uh, and you're respectful in that way, like for special yeah. considerations? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the largest special consideration on the USS Arizona, the survivors. Um, there's few of them today. When I started working there, there was many more. I've, I've had some very good friends uh, be Arizona survivors and Pearl Harbor survivors. And I have watched them age. Um, I've watched them pass away. And honestly, uh, one of the highlights of, of my career, I've been honored to uh, be part of the interment ceremonies that actually puts them back into the ship. Um, the, those who are, who are on the ship during December 7th who survived the attack um, have the, uh, the privilege and the honor that they can be cremated in the National Park Service and Navy will inter them into the ship with their shipmates. Um, I've done dozens of those over my career. Um, and there's something to be said for, for meeting and, and befriending somebody, um, you know, kind of connecting with them uh, throughout their lives. And then, you know, the family or being part of that final resting place and, and actually being involved in the interment of them. But the Arizona survivor groups and Pearl Harbor survivors, we, we take very, um, uh, very deliberate precautions about work we do. Um, you know, when we st- first started putting remotely operated vehicles inside the ship, uh, no one had ever done that in the nineties. You know, the thought was, oh, oh my God, you're desecrating a grave. And, and, you know, we said, well, we have to ask this question in a scientific framework. We need to know what's happening on the interior spaces of the ship. So 
one of the first things we did is we we put forth the research rationale and we mm-hmm. uh, we went to the survivor groups and said we want to do this on your ship we didn't ask the navy uh, we didn't ask the national park service we didn't ask any bureaucratic agency we went to the the men of the ship and said this is what we want to do this is why we want to do if you on this day say no then but we're done like we will never put anything inside the ship uh, unless it's blessed and, and and you guys concur with that. And and the Survivors Association did because it wasn't it wasn't a voyeuristic approach. It was a science approach. And every time we have done interior exploration or investigation inside the ship, um, they have been in the loop. They've they've actually many survivors have been with us. Uh, looking at the monitors as we navigate through the ship, which is a whole nother experience, bringing them mm-hmm. back to the the place where they were, you know, young eighteen year old sailors on their ship, and they haven't seen it since then. That's a that's a pretty remarkable thing as well. Wow. Um, but but paying them the respect that they get first crack, they they have first kind of you know right of refusal, if you will. I think it shows them the utmost respect uh, along that level of respect to we. We never, you know, from a diving perspective, we never enter the ship. I mean, there are all kinds of places you can go, uh, interior spaces and hallways, just out of a deference and reverence. We, you know, we we never penetrate the ship out of respect for those who are still entombed. Um, there's no there's no need to. There's no desire on the park service's part. So, it, it's a special place that requires more than just a scientific approach to hard research. There's a lot of there's a lot of human questions that we ask and answer there. There's a lot of um, humanity that kind of is driving what we do on the site. And ultimately those decisions are framed in what's best for the, for the community and what's best for the research. And, and all of that is an effort to use science to try to extrapolate and tell the story of the Arizona, but also how long it'll last and what the condition of it is. And we find that that opens up a lot of avenues in the scientific community to kind of tell the Pearl Harbor story. You know, there's a, there's a lot of science that can be driven um, out of that particular site, and that science actually has tremendous applications around the world for World War II era vessels, you know, lying all around the world that are leaking oil in a similar fashion. So there's applicable, um, you know, really plug-in results that we can generate on Arizona that actually, you know, work worldwide. That's amazing. It is amazing, and I think you guys um, made a great approach. Um, towards us and respecting the survivors, um, but I'd like to take a little bit. Uh, switch gears here a little bit and uh, ask you, um, you've dove the volcanic vents in Yellowstone uh, and that sounds otherworldly. Uh, yes. Uh, Yellowstone, it, you know, the interesting thing about Yellowstone is everybody associates it with the national park. So Yellowstone is actually kind of my hook for what I do um, and what the Submerged Resources Center does. You know, everybody says, oh, Yellowstone, I know Yellowstone. Well, did you know that Yellowstone has a massive lake there? And in that lake, is not only uh, geothermal vents like you would go see on the shoreline, but there's also shipwrecks in Yellowstone Lake. So it opens up a whole conversation of what's there. But Yellowstone is a very is a dramatic place to dive because there's not many places in the world that you can access those kind of geothermal activities without being, you know, in in the in the deep sea vents, mm-hmm. so to speak. You know, at three thousand meters off an ROV or a submersible. Um, the environment is very unique in that there's tremendous amount of hot water that's coming out of the bottom of the earth. It's superheated. And, and some of the vents that we've dove are, are dormant and active. Um, some of the more visually interesting ones are there's a series of dormant geothermal vents. They're roughly 11,000 years old um, that, that are very unique, very, to say they're otherworldly is, is exactly correct. And then a lot of the other places you'll have just these bubblers, you know, these 
these thermal vents that you can swim over and, and the water temperature, the, the elevation is about 8,000 feet. Um, and, uh, you know, the water temperature is rarely above mid forties. I'm sorry. I'm, if I need to convert that to Celsius, your, <laughs> your, right. your listeners will have to do hard math because I'm an ignorant American who doesn't really work in the world standard. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's cold. So yeah. you, you, yeah. you can, you know, you can be really cold and swim over these geothermal events, but it's, it's, it's almost counterproductive because it's like standing next to a bonfire and walking away and you know heat, you're always colder when you leave the fire than when right. you actually you know <laughs> got close to it and that's how it is with a the thermal vents but it's a very unique area um to dive there's no support there's no dive shops there's something in jackson wyoming but um y- you have to really be self-sufficient along with the altitude um and uh, you know in the cold water it's it's not an easy environment to dive but you know with a little bit of uh, of effort in in uh, it's a pretty spectacular place to visit for sure. Yeah, it sounds amazing. So, what other projects are the SRC currently involved in? We um you know the, the Submerged Resources Center has a has kind of a, a kind of a crazy project schedule. I mean, there's kind of things that we do for parks on a a regular to routine. You know, we, we do a lot of shipwreck surveys. We do a lot of inventory monitoring of shipwrecks. And we've been doing a lot of things with, with corals lately, kind of mm-hmm. using uh, uh, technology and, and, and photogrammetry and, and high resolution optics to tell the story. Um, we've also been doing some things with, in partnership with the Department of Defense, which are a couple of interesting projects that we've, we've done in the past. And we may have one coming up in the South Pacific um, you know, the United States uh, Military Department of Defense has a, a, a POW uh, MIA accounting agency. Um, they're called the DPAA. Um, and basically, their mandate is to recover lost U.S. servicemen around the world. Um, and, and our involvement has been in that in the underwater world, shockingly, um, usually downed aircraft. So a few of us did a project over in Croatia a few years ago where we recovered a pilot from a B-24 um, there's another project on the docket that we might be in the South Pacific at a place called Tarawa, looking at a couple of aircrafts down there. Um, so that's kind of a longer, uh, you know, uh, a project COVID willing, uh, mm-hmm. if the world actually does open up again, we may hit down there. Um, we have projects in, in Isle Royal National Park, some traumatic, some just fantastic shipwrecks in Lake Superior. Uh, we'll be there for three weeks in the spring. So, it's uh, it, it, like I, I said a little bit earlier, it's a, it's a geographically diverse uh, assignment, but it's also a, a diving diverse assignment. You know, cold water, warm water, um, under the ice. There's also a project that I may I, I may personally do. It's it's kind of connected to the Park Service, kind of not, but kind of a bucket list. I've been I've been trying to get down to the ice uh, in a, in Antarctic now for. Uh, a decade or so, and I'm, I'm finally on a, a short list for NSF that just got funded. So I may be down there this year mm. uh, for a couple months down in, uh, in, in Antarctica, working on some projects with some fellow scientists down there. So wow. um, th- it, it's hard to say one that stands out. And, and you know, I, I say all these things, and they they kind of roll off my tongue. And I don't mean to sound disingenuous. E- each one of these particular projects, I understand, is kind of a bucket list project. And and here I am saying we're stringing three or four of them together a year. And, and that may not be the average year, but, um, but it, it, it goes back to the thing that I will never, I will never kind of shy away from saying my gig is amazing, you know, and, and, <laughs> and I, and I don't, and I don't say that as a nine and nine and nine, I take it very responsibly, you know, and I, I try my best to communicate those. I'm, I'm fortunate to be a photographer that I can tell those stories in a, in a responsible way. And it's not about, it, I get really frustrated in the in the underwater community with the diving community that says, "Look what I had the opportunity to do," 
and, and really the, the tenant is there is you didn't, you know, and, and that always has kind of been like, I guess that's a little bit what social media is all about, but it's a little bit self-serving. I mean, I'm very fortunate to be attached to a, to an organization where the mission exists. Um, I don't have to, you know, claim any kind of independence or, or self-gratification because the mission speaks for itself, whether that's recovering, you know, World War II pilots or helping coral biologists with coral disease or, or sharing, you know, what shipwrecks happen in the park service. Um, mm. It's all backed by a mission, you know, and a mandate for to do this for the public, which is which is very fulfilling personally to be a photographer in that in that space. Uh, most definitely. Um, it, you brought it a couple times along the way, and I'm um, kind of uh, I love this stuff. But uh, what what role does photogrammetry play in in documenting all these resources? So uh, I will say that the short answer is photogrammetry has blown up the world of underwater photography in my space. Um, mm. You know, I used to be a photographer with 36 frames on a roll mm-hmm. of Velvia film on a Nikonis 4. Life was easy. Yeah. You shot, <laughs> you developed, you got the shot, you didn't get the shot, you walked away either with a smile or a frown, but you were done. Mm-hmm. Um, that's done. You know, I find myself now, I, I travel with, you know, a 56 terabyte RAID. Uh, we have a, a, an optical system called the C array that I help design. That is a three camera package that we're generating 20 plus thousand images per dive, four hour dives and closed circuit rebreathers. We're mapping, essentially mapping in high resolution bottomlands, you know, massive seascapes of shipwrecks or coral reefs or what have you. Mm-hmm. So photogrammetry has really been a game changer. It's been a game changer also in, in the science. So in the science of archaeology, there, there's not an archaeological project we do underwater where there's not a photogrammetric aspect of it. it mm. It's really been a game changer in natural resources, coral biology, coral ecology. Um, we're using these camera systems now to tell the story of coral disease. We're using them to tell the story of, of, uh, of health of corals. You know, it, it really has changed how we can not only view the underwater world, but how we can, in, in the park services case, manage it, how mm. we can interpret it, how we can, how we can baseline the, the, the health of reefs or the integrity of shipwrecks. Um, it's, it's on a scale that we're doing, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, a lot of people are doing photogrammetry. I mean, the difference in, in what we're doing in terms of kind of, I don't want to use the word professional, but occupational perhaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have developed systems where we have we're porting GPS signals subsurface, so I actually can navigate underwater with a with a breadcrumb like you would drive your car on Google Earth over these la- these massive areas of underwater coral reefs, and we're pinpoint accuracy GPS geolocating each one of these frames in the real world. So coral biologists could go back and say, "Oh, that coral head right there." that looks diseased. And I can say, well, here, here are the GPS numbers on that coral head. Um, so we're really, we're really kind of pushing forward photogrammetry and it's been, it's been a challenge. I mean, on one hand, it's been personally rewarding, but it's also been a challenge to find people in the space around the world. And, and it is a global community of people who are doing this on the scale that we're doing it. Um, and, and really partnering with the ones who are smarter than me. That, that's really the secret in life I find is, <laughs> is you reach out to people who are, who are brighter and more dynamic um, mm-hmm. and you grab hold of them and, and, you know, and you, and you work with them and, and you have them help you in your pursuit. That's what we've been doing in Photogram. We have partners in, in Sweden, Finland, and England. Um, you know, it's a true, it's a true international group, yeah. but photogrammetry, you know, 
it, it, you know, when grad students are coming out of school saying, you know, they know everything about photogrammetry with their GoPro and, you know, they're, um, they're, they're trying to change the world with it, but it really has been a big change. Um, it's, it's been a big push in the underwater photography world where mm-hmm. a lot of professional photographers are shifting over doing a lot of photogrammetry because it's, it's a great way to tell your story. You know, it's a great yeah. way to visualize an entire shipwreck when you're only looking at pieces and, and portions of it in a low visibility environment. So it's dramatically changed my world. I used to be an underwater photographer. Now I'm a computer science slash IT nerd slash, you know, <laughs> GIS specialist with a camera right. is really right. what it's kind of crossed over to. It's a game changer. Yeah. I was talking to one of our past guests actually earlier today. I was telling him you were going to be on the, the podcast uh, and he does photogrammetry locally on Rex, more as a hobbyist kind of thing. Um, and, uh, but yeah, he was blown away by the scale because, you know, we've got wrecks here that are a couple hundred meters long and, uh, you know, it's just like daunting or next to impossible to, to accurately, uh, manage those large areas and especially low visibility and all those, all those things that we get. And, uh, and your, yeah, we, we were like looking at your, your images and like seeing the, the iPad looking display on your, on your rig there yeah. that uh, most obviously was your roadmap. And, uh, yeah. just, yeah, seems really, really, uh, awesome. I, in, <laughs> in the past, in the past four or five years, I have started many dives saying this is way too daunting and impossible. Trust me, uh, being in the water with those camera systems and looking at how to map stuff. Um, mm. you know, I, I will say with photogrammetry again, diving podcast here, um, mm-hmm. really a game changer in that has been rebreathers for us. Yeah. I mean, I, I know of many dives, you know, in, in South Florida, we're diving rebreathers for the time, not the depth. But I, I, I can recall dives where I spent 45 minutes to an hour just analyzing the reef that I had to model. You know, mm-hmm. if I was trying to do that on a, on a Lumen 80 or double hundreds, what have you, the clock is always ticking, you know, and, and as right. an underwater photographer, that beating of the drum of gas just going out into the nether always bothered me even before i was on closed circuit systems so closed circuit in combination with photogrammetry has really opened up a world for us but it is uh it is it is the it is the way forward i mean there there are sea changes that come in our industry mm. you know the aqualung um i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say the split fin because i don't believe in it but you know there are things <laughs> that are game changers in our in our business and color photography and you know that but photogrammetry is the next game changer because mm-hmm. it, it, it hits it hits what you want to do recreationally it hits occupational it hits science it, it, it tags so many bases that it's not going away and and yeah. we figured if it's not going away and, and we work for a <laughs> conservation and, and mission focused agency let's not i mean let's dive in and let's do it to the best of our ability and we're we're running some pretty aggressive photogrammetry platforms right now um, because it is the way forward and, it, and it's our mission and it's our mandate. So uh, it is a game changer for sure. And what can the dive community do to help document wrecks and local resources? I, I think photogrammetry is, is spot on. You know, I mean, the, the, the great thing about photogrammetry, it, 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 it tends to be an equalizer between those who have high dollar systems and those who get lucky quite frankly <laughs> with their cameras you know and and i'm sure we've all seen both of those um but it, it opens up a world for for pretty low end kind of investment in equipment that you can tell a different story you know if you have a little bit of computer savvy and and you know you don't have to spend a bunch of money on software there are open source uh open source um options there 
Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's part of that's that's part of the the move forward in in kind of this kind of preservation or helping helping people understand. Um, you know, in, in, in the thing with imagery that is coming or it has come is this kind of crowdsourcing, you know, now mm. all of a sudden, if, if you're interested in, in, in doing research on a thing, well, you know, 20 years ago, how did you find who had photographs of a certain wreck at a certain place? Well, now, you know, Google it. A- and mm. that, that ability to crowdsource images also comes into play for photogrammetry, um, both for historic, you know, historic features around the world in land, all of these landmarks, but also underwater, we're seeing that come to pass as well. Where, where these images are publicly available um, and they're starting to be plugged in in a, in a kind of crowdsource way to kind of tell the story of the underwater world, which I think is it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I'm going to start a photogrammetry podcast. I'm sure there's some out there already, <laughs> but uh, photogrammetry diving <laughs> podcast because I just talk about this stuff randomly all day despite not actually there, doing any of it. <laughs> there's a lot There's a lot out there. You know, I mean, the, yeah. the thing that you, you have to you have to get through the people who want to do it and the people that mm-hmm. are doing it. You know, mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot of people that are doing, it. I don't mean to, yeah. to be yeah, yeah. uppity about it, but, um, but you know, literally everyone with a GoPro now is an underwater photographer. So, yeah, you, sure. you know, everybody's doing it kind of a thing, which is good. It expands the, you know, expands the world. Speaking of expanding the world, uh, or contracting it, I'm originally from Las Vegas. Uh, and so I learned how to dive in Lake Mead and oh, the, Lake infamous, Mead. the infamous B29 in Lake Mead Lake that Mead. Uh, always interest to me. Uh, I saw yes. when I was looking on your website, your name was on the site plan there. I was wondering uh, if I could hear a little bit of story, what, uh, uh, anything about that. Yeah. So I think the archaeologist put my name on the site plan as a, as a gesture. I mean, I, I was involved in the original <laughs> mapping. Um, okay. I, I'd be lying to say if I really did much of the mapping on that, but I was part of that mm-hmm. team. And, and photography okay. obviously did play an, a big part of the mapping. Um, yeah, you know, really interesting site. Again, uh, uh, a really case in point of why the Submerged Resources Center exists. The, the plane ended up in Lake Mead in 1948. It was doing upper atmosphere, very highly complex, highly scientific, highly classified uh, work. Crashed in 48. The National Park Service knew it has been there since it went down. The Park Service actually helped recover the, the crew. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we mentioned a little bit earlier with, with climate change, you know, the water has dropped so dramatically in Lake Mead. I mean, hundreds of feet. When I first started diving the site around 2000, I think it was, um, we were doing dives at, at 200 foot profiles. We were doing open circuit, mixed gas mm-hmm. and heliox. And, uh, it was a dive. It was a deep dive. Um, you know, I mean, 200 is not that deep nowadays, but OC, you know, we, we were, we were out there. Um, now I think, I think to the sand, it might be maybe a hundred feet. Like mm-hmm. it has lost so much water. Um, but that site, the first time I'll never forget descending on it the first time I, I'm a big fan of light underwater because photography is nothing more than light, <laughs> uh, and being able yeah. to capture that light. So I actually partnered with a friend in, in Los Angeles who owns a company called Hydroflex who does underwater film and, and motion picture. And I got these four 1,200-watt HMI lights, built a chandelier, and hung them over the site. And we lit up all 1,200 watts, and, and it, the, the site just illuminated. The whole plane just glowed. And we dropped wow. down on it. There, you could read all of the external use only, emergency use, all the stenciling on the windowsills, um, all of the skin. The aluminum skin had not been covered with quagga mussels, which are an invasive mm-hmm. species that are there now. It was, it was, it was shiny, and it was pristine. And it was an amazing dive. It was amazing. Wow. Um, and, and since then, you know, going back, the water level has dropped. And what that means is, you know, more, more algae, more, more, more uh, blooms, more quaggas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the site is, has 
is not the same as it was. Um, we're starting to see some deterioration in the tail. The tail part of the tail is broken. Uh, we believe the weight of the quag has kind of impacted that in the in the the um, the loss of material and the strength members. Um, but still, it you know the National Park Service fought long and hard to keep it where it is. I mean, there was some well-meaning people who wanted to recover the site and they had some backing from some very wealthy individuals and it went to court that uh, they should be able to salvage it and part it out and uh, you know sell it to the highest bidder because B-29s are few and far between, especially flying B-29s. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a it is an amazing site and it, it is the most preserved um, B-29 aircraft I've ever seen underwater. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, short of in diveable depths, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff yeah. in the Pacific. But um, it is a it is a clearly uh, unique and one of a kind of experience for sure um, to be able to dive it in Lake Mead and it's it's so accessible in Las Vegas you know it's crazy yeah. that it's that it's that easy in that easy out um, and it's right there it's a, it's a really great dive yeah I taught scuba diving for years in Vegas uh, and but it was way too deep and I was never I couldn't uh, back then couldn't afford to pay huge bucks to get the get on the charter to. Yeah, and, and I wasn't a tech diver, and I guess I'm yep. still not. But uh, really, uh, <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just love thinking about that. Uh, and uh, yeah, and for, unfortunately, fortunately, I, you know, I guess I'll probably be able to dive on it at some point a little more easily. Yeah. Well, uh, being able to dive on it, I mean, we're we're worried in the national parks is you might be able to hike to it with with yeah. the, with the water drowned down at Lake Mead. You know, I mean, it's it's amazing, it's drastic yeah. um, how much water is has been uh, has you know, has just left that lake. And that again, kind of goes back to our pressure. You know, yeah. these things happen with snowpack, but the pressure and it mm-hmm. is sustainable with the population and the water needs in the, in the Southwest of the United States. Yeah. Um, that's really, truly the question. So, but still, it's a great dive. Fantastic yeah. site. Awesome. Yeah. It seems like every time we talk about a, uh, a piece of work that you're doing, it's an incredible story and it keeps me kind of <laughs> riveted into what you're, what we're chatting about here, but you were also <laughs> just, just to throw another one of those crazy ones in there. You were involved with the 2011 expedition to the Canadian Arctic to find the missing Franklin yes. expedition ships. How did you take part in that? And just just tell us about that. Uh, luck, pure luck. <laughs> um, no, we we have a longstanding great relationship with our our partners to the north, uh, Parks Canada, and their mm-hmm. underwater archaeology branch, um, underwater archaeology unit. Um, really incredible group of individuals. And at the time, uh, they were looking for some assistance in imaging. They, they, they're a group of underwater archaeologists. They didn't have a photographer on staff. Um, you know, one of the things the Submerged Resources Center has done that's interesting is we've always had a staff position in the history of the program that just deals with photography. Um, I think early on, we recognized it's different to put a, a camera in the hands of a photographer versus in the hands of an archaeologist who knows how to shoot. And that's kind of the Parks Canada model. They have a very talented underwater archaeologist who is a, a talented shooter as well, but um, they wanted just some technical assistance. So I was asked to come up in, in the HMS Investigator project um, there that you're referring to. I mean, w- was one of the top five bucket list projects I've had in my career. I mean, it was living on the edge, the edge of the, sh- of the ice shelf. Um, we were camping. It was heloed in. Um, you know, all, all of the resources that were there. We were the first people to dive the site. And never, I mean. You know, everybody dreams of descending on a shipwreck that's never been dove. Um, this mm-hmm. was truly one of those. Um, and the Parks Canada guys were, you know, they, they were so gracious to extend an invitation. And um, it was at the point where the, the Canadian Arctic, uh, I'm sure, still is, you know, a point of contention and, and kind of, uh, you know, kind of asserting, you know, provincial claim, if you will, or, you know, making sure that things in Canada stay in Canada. 
um, they were real hesitant to have a, 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 an American as part of the crew, actually, which is kind of interesting. Um, when we talked about me going, I, they, they were very quick to tell me I didn't need to worry about being in uniform because they didn't want any <laughs> identification uh, with the United States National Park Service Ranger being part of the team. So um, I went in in street clothes uh, and acted my part as a the best I could with my Canadian accent uh, coming from New Hampshire. I, I, knew, I knew a few of them. Um, yeah. and, and fit in pretty well, but, mm-hmm. but truly a, a, an amazing project. And, you know, has been since eclipsed, I will say with Erebus and terror, to be fair. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody remembers HMS investigated anymore when you have these amazing ships in Erebus and terror, um, uh, which is my next, uh, angle I'm working, but a, a whole nother, a whole nother <laughs> discussion of, of getting up to Erebus and terror. Um, but no, it, it, it was a, it was a truly, uh, it, it was a truly an amazing project to be part of. Uh, just the, the logistics, you know, we do a lot of diving and, and divers dive and some are off liveaboards and some, you know, I had to carry my cylinders to the dive, you know, blah, blah, blah. But this was like helo in, helo out, live in a tent, 24 hours of daylight. So operations were, you know, we were doing dives at 3 a.m. and didn't know it. Um, <laughs> really a spectacular thing. And I, I will say my, I, I was very privileged and honored Parks Canada partnered with a, a writer. I, I can't remember his name now, but um, they did a, a wonderful book on that on that expedition, um, hardcover book, which is fantastic history, um, but also um, you know ha- has a fair amount of imagery that we generated off that project, which I was very proud to be part of. So, um, uh, and 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 one last thing about investigator, you know, the whole I, you know we don't have time to go into the whole thing, but the whole thing about the, the shipwreck actually coming to fruition and the captain McClure making it out and living, um, in his journal, what I would do is in, in the evenings, um, being there, I would, I would read his journal. So I was, you know, working on the site, uh, sleeping in a tent, but reading his journal and we would hike up every day to this, to the top of this overlook, the same place that McClure sent his, uh, people every day to look for rescue. The, you know, the say the Karen, the, the rock yeah. pile is still there. Um, the bodies from investigators still have a hump in the, and the permafrost, you can see, still see where the men are buried. Um, but it was, wow. it was really fascinating to kind of take a step back in time, not only working the site as part of a kind of an elite crew with parks, Canada, but reading the firsthand accounts and being like, Oh, so that's where they were. And Oh, this is where they were. And so that was, that was really kind of a, an immersive experience, if you will, to, to mm. read his hand, his, his account firsthand of the site that you were working uh, in collaboration with Parks Canada. It was, it was, it was a very unique project. And, and like I said, I mean, I've, I've been fortunate to do a lot of really amazing projects, but that was, was truly one of the top and that I've done in my career. Wow. Wow. Speechless. That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to say that's amazing. I love I love the Parks Canada guys and girls. Fantastic team. And I'm not just saying that because I want to get on Airbus and Terror. I truly do like that. <laughs> well, we do have a lot of Parks Canada uh, listeners, so uh, this is a good spot to be. They have probably one of the most talented, and, and again, uh, I don't need to say this, they're probably one of the most talented and forward-thinking group of underwater archaeologists in the world. The, mm. the, the things that they put out in what they're doing in Airbus and Terror right now are are... I mean, I can say this with some degree of certainty because I'm in this space are, are not being done anywhere else. There's no other nation that is really combining technology with laser photogrammetry and old school mapping and underwater archaeology techniques, combining it together comprehensively to tell the story of those wrecks. And it's, it's, it's truly an amazing body of work that they're putting together up there. It's really incredible. 
No. So you have a website. We spoke about it earlier. Um, but if somebody wants to find you or the SRC online, where should they look? Yeah. So, so a couple of, a couple of sites, one for the national park service, we have a, a site that's basically just nps.gov slash submerged and, and it will get you into our, uh, our park service page. Um, uh, early on in my career, the National Park Service and the federal government in general, you know, they're not great on the IT front. They're not exactly pushing <laughs> forward the frontiers of, of what the internet is, <laughs> is capable of. So what I started doing is just kind of leveraging my opportunities inside the Park Service and, and doing a, a forward-facing kind of personal site. It's in mm-hmm. no means to, to, to brandish my, you know, my ego or say how talented I am. It's just a way for people to find my images and, and, and a way yeah. to tell the stories that are mirrored in the national park. So that, that uh, website is just Brett Seymour Photography. It's not very creative, but uh, brettseymourphotography.com. And, and you can, uh, you know, from there you can look at it. It's very park service heavy for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. There's also, you know, a, a few tidbits in there about other expeditions, the, the Erebus, uh, excuse me, the uh, investigator and some work I did in Greece and in, in uh, some other areas around the world that I've been fortunate enough to work. But it's, it's largely there to kind of show people what's available in the national parks in the underwater world of that, uh, that, you know, like I said earlier, is really kind of the best kept secret of, of park visitation and what you can do in your national parks. It's pretty remarkable. Mm, what keeps you diving? What keeps me diving? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's a really good question, actually. I mean, it seems like a basic question, but, you know, it, as my career progresses, I get asked to do more things, right? So, you know, you start off young and you're just jonesing to get on the road. You're, you're jonesing to prove yourselves. You'll take any gig you can get to, you know, try to showcase and, and try to prove your talent and, and really see if you have what it takes to to work in this business, in the underwater photography business. But as I as I've been in the it, it, you know, shooting for a long time underwater, I get asked to do more and more projects, either inside the park service or out. And what keeps me diving, it's interesting because um, you know, I, I have a family. I, I live in Denver, Colorado, and I have a family. And you know, it, it sounds great to travel around the world and do all these projects, but there's a flip side to that where I'm not home. You know, and I, mm. I, I really, really love being at home and, and spending time with my with my family. So, the projects what keeps me diving is it's got to be really, it, it's got to be really something different. You know, it's really got to be something that, and and I say that not because I think I only deserve to take the best projects. I say that because I, I really want to tell those unique stories. You know, I, I really want to showcase those. A lot of people see it as the further you go, the better the stories are. I see it as the better the story, the better the story, you know, and, and how, how you can connect, um, you know, a human aspect to the stories. I, I spent a lot of my career, you know, shooting, for instance, World War II aircraft tanks and, you know, vestiges underwater. Um, and really, it wasn't until I did some work in in Croatia and putting the World War II generation and recovering the crew members of this particular plane that things really started shifting. That there's so many stories behind all of these images. So it's one thing to just take an amazing photo in a far flung place, but it's so much more interesting to me mm-hmm. to connect that with a story, with a personality, with a life, um, with a connection. And you know that's probably why the USS Arizona has been such a a mainstay in my career. And it's been so fascinating because there's no end to the stories and into the sacrifice in, you know, to the honor that is, that is really should be given those, those men on that ship. Um, and it's a way to really marry images with storytelling. So I think what keeps me diving is the opportunity to expand people's minds through underwater images that, you know, that's the reason I got into it in the first place. It wasn't to 
because it was fun. It was because I thought it'd be really cool to tell those stories. So I, I'd have to say the answer to that would be what keeps me diving is, is opportunities to tell those stories, you know, and, and to connect those people, whether it's corals and, and danger or, you know, heroic efforts on World War II sites or everything in between. There's so many stories out there. Um, and they're inaccessible largely to the public. You know, that's uh, a lot of people dive because it's interesting and it's a recreational opportunity. Some people dive to tell stories. And um, I'm just one of those people that believe there's a lot, there's a lot of good content underwater that we don't have to make up that there's real stories that deserve to be told. And, you know, if you have a little bit of talent and you have the right equipment and you have the right access, which is what the park service has provided me with, then I'll keep telling the stories. That's really awesome. That, uh, man, it was, uh, it was a super fun conversation and, and that's a really inspiring, I, li- I wrote down, uh, the better the story, the better the story. Uh, yeah, <laughs> might just end up the podcast title uh, for this episode. Well, it, it, it makes me sound like I have no, you know, like no hook. Like I, that's an obvious one, but yeah, I mean, I think there is some truth <laughs> to that. We we spend a lot of time fabricating, you know, in a social media world, trying to make things look better. You know, mm-hmm. th- there's things out there that don't need to be embellished that that are true stories that need to be told, and I, I think yeah. I'm a fan of those the most. Yeah, well, and those stories don't have to be in the weird place. You know, it does. Yeah. It's they can be in the bottom of Lake Mead or, and, you know, in a lake in Yellowstone or in unexpected places. You know, I, yeah. I've always kind of had this thread through my career of this, this concept of underwater wonders of the national park service, because nobody knows they're there. Yeah. You know, nobody, nobody gets that. And, and that's true for around the world. You know, there's so mm-hmm. many great stories, um, that, uh, that, that many talented people have told. And I just have a, uh, I guess I have a, uh, a soft spot to, to tell those underwater stories. Awesome. Well, we thank you for coming on the podcast tonight, chatting with us, having a nice long sit down. And and we uh, covered a lot of territory and there's so much more that we could have covered. uh, But, you know, we've only only got a, you know, a very long hour that we recorded here. So, uh, well, I believe, I, I think you guys, I think you guys are lying. I think you're going to cut this down to 15 minutes and you know, this nope. has just been fodder. fodder you got to listen to some of our, we, we, uh, some of we our keep episodes. pushing the limits of our listeners uh, every week okay. uh, with, uh, yeah. with more in-depth uh, coverage from our, from our guests. So uh, again, thanks for coming on and uh, it's been, it's been a blast. Well, it, it's been, a, it's been a privilege. I'm, I, I'm never, I never shy away from being able to tell people about not what I do, but what's mm-hmm. there. You know, I've never, yeah. I never shy away from trying to inspire people to, to kind of get out and discover the underwater world. Cause it, it really changed my life as a kid. And I think that, I think, you know, podcasts or, or social media or, you know, what have you, anything that we can get people out and, and looking and observing and, and kind of, you know, being part of the, the underwater world is, you know, uh, I'm all in. So thank you for having me. It's, it's been a great hour plus. Yeah, it's uh, it's been fun, and I and I can tell you right now, you you said it's part of sharing that, and I can tell you that I would have never considered that if I want to think of places to go diving, that I should check with the National Park Service, or that you know, the turnaround, and <laughs> I should be like, oh, Parks Canada is doing this really innovative work, and you know, I mean, hopefully, we can have your Parks Canada counterpart on here uh, at at some point to tell their side of the story. Uh, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's been it's been really enjoyable from from my standpoint. If you do ask them on, you know, you got to make sure they say something good about the National Park Service in the States because I, <laughs> I, I, I talked them up good. So they yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> we'll just make sure that they right, have guys. to invite you on that expedition and then just yeah, listen. Well, that, that should be, you should <laughs> we'll put them in the hot to, seat. To, yeah. Yes. You should, you should say, we, we understand the only way you can appear on this podcast is if you extend <laughs> right. an invitation. So, yeah. Uh, that's great. 
Well, that was an awesome interview. Thanks again, Brett, for coming on the show. And up next, we have Amit with the Deco Stop. Thank you guys very much. That was quite an awesome uh, chat with with Brett there. And I, I wanted to turn our attention to Deco Stop. And surprise, surprise, we'll talk about something that I quite enjoy. Uh, but, you know, it's, it seems like a really straightforward thing, uh, trim. And so uh, we've not really discussed it in any length, and I'm happy to have some input here from you guys as dive instructors and dive professionals as well. Uh, but from the deco stop side of things, like if we are diving, and when this is really, you know, regardless of whether or not you're a, a recreational diver or a technical diver, but there's skills that you can start implementing from the day that you start diving that will continue on into uh, proper form as you become a tech diver um, is proper trim. And so we might want to think about that from like, you know, the old days of like, why, why would people even care about trim and what's the big deal about that? Well, I mean, obviously the number one thing is that you're going to look cool in the water, right? So <laughs> that, that's got to be the number one thing. Like you don't want to look like you're going for a walk while swimming through the water and, Ideal trim allows you to do that. But from a logistical standpoint, that really is irrelevant because it's very rare that I'm underwater and I can actually see myself. What I do find is probably one of the best um, issues that comes with ideal trim is that you reduce the amount of water resistance that you're dealing with, right? So if you're in trim, you can think of your, your body as being, you know, bladed through the water and you're cutting through the water as a horizontal surface. And because of that, you have several benefits. So you move quicker through the water or you can use less energy to move through the water because as I've been told, sometimes I really need to slow down apparently. I don't know what people <laughs> are talking about, but I've, I feel like I swim pretty slow, but apparently that's not the case. Uh, the other piece is that obviously if you are trimmed out properly and you've included taking time to streamline your gear so you don't have hoses flying around all over the place and you know, maybe cylinders uh, stuck to your back. Oh, oh, did I cross over into? No, I might have crossed over into side <laughs> mount there. But, uh, <laughs> but seriously, if you did take time to streamline some of your gear, uh, you achieve like another uh, piece of uh, benefit there, which is that you know because of that uh, that streamlining and because of the fact that you're cutting through the water the way that you are, you tend to reduce things like your air consumption and your workload in the water. Uh, and the benefit there is obvious. You get to spend more time in the water and you have, you know, less chances of being tired and uh, what have mm. you. So, I mean, from my end, it helps out as well. Uh, I find if you're in proper trim and you need to like, uh, look at things and, or communicate with people, like your ability to do things like helicopter turns and, or fin pivots, uh, and if you're back finning or using like, you know, more advanced, uh, finning techniques than proper trim puts you in a place that sets the foundation for those things to be able to uh, continue and so and become easier. So I think for me, uh, I guess if I were to put it out there for today's deco stop, it would be as as we progress into technical diving and even as technical divers, even when you think that you're good, uh, we should probably consider uh, evaluating what our trim is like and trying to figure out ways to improve it. And I can tell you, uh, every time I see a video of myself, uh, I'm usually kind of, you know, cringing uh, at, at what I see <laughs> because in my head, it's like it's a great thing that I'm doing. And then I see a video and I'm just like, oh, there's so many things that I need to fix. Where do I start? And usually trim is one of the ones that, you know, whether it be tank trim or my trim, uh, I'm usually mm -hmm. concerned about it at, at all points of diving. So I don't know. What do you guys think <laughs> as uh, as instructors? 
I mean, I totally agree. I think uh, I think trim is uh, something that is unfortunately under. I'm sure I'm not the first one or the even the thousandth scuba instructor to say people don't train you to dive and trim with good buoyancy and open water courses enough. But I mean, it's uh, it's a fact, um, and I think people should take more time to focus on that, uh, even if you have to sacrifice maybe some other things. And you know, anyway time management anyway uh just because of how important it is uh, and to put it into perspective of today's guests uh i can't imagine uh brett or anyone any of the other underwater photographers underwater photographers we've ever had on the podcast swimming around in poor trim with stuff flailing all over the place um because you're not going to be able to maneuver properly you're not going to be able to keep uh the bottom from getting damaged or the hundred thousand year old artifact that you're looking at from being damaged if you uh if you're not in trim and if you're not um squared away so i think admit you hit the nail on the head and it's something that we should all be trying to better ourselves about april you suggested that uh admit talk about trim this week that was uh was a good good suggestion i did i did his homework for him this week and i really needed my notes yeah i mean (laughs) hey Somebody's got to do it. And uh, I, I mean, what can I tell you? I was there and ready. And the notes were right in front of me. I mean, you left them on the table, April. I what did. was I supposed I to did. do? Mm. Yep. You know, you help your friends when they're in need. So I like that. Yeah. Here we are. I like that. There you go. Let's head over to travel with Justin. It's bucket list time. Um, I'm going to send you guys a picture in the chat. I know you folks at home can't really see this picture, uh, but you can go to the show notes and click the link. All right. So here's the thing. There's this place they call the underwater, they call a monument or, or some people call it ruins. If you look at that picture, is that, do you think that's a, that's a natural occurring phenomenon or do you think people had a hand in carving those structures? So, I mean, I mean it looks, it looks people made, but I feel like you're going to tell me that it's all natural. I say people made. If you listen to most scientists, they'll say that it's natural, but wow. uh, the vast majority of people who dive there are like totally struck by the by the geometry by mm. the sharp edges by the like by the paths and natural stairwells and all kinds of crazy stuff uh this this uh this spot here is somewhere that i've uh, always wanted to go to uh yonaguni japan is one of the destinations that a lot of people have seen photos of but they might not know much about it's the westernmost island of japan it's also very near the southernmost as well in fact it's much closer to taiwan than it is to the mainland uh divers travel there to the islands uh to the island to see those ruins um and i put ruins in kind of air quotes because you know it's up to you and uh, what you think uh and, and more recently it's even become a place to see uh hammerheads in the winter months so kind of like uh january through march you can see see hammerheads uh in the area which would be just incredible seeing swimming against that backdrop uh although the weather there during the winter isn't isn't amazing uh high winds and stuff so since the discovery of these uh ruins or monument as you might want to call it uh people have said everything it's from it's the lost city of Atlantis to it was made by aliens. Um, in geologic history, it's newer than the pyramids. So like it's, it's possible people did have a hand in, uh, in carving some of this out. Maybe there's a lost area where this uh, stone was cut out of and, and taken somewhere. Who, who, it's anybody's guess. Um, 
it's also a massive site. Like I said, two to 3,000 years old. And it may be, have become submerged around that point due to like uh, uh, shifts of land or, or, uh, or ice age. So it's, uh, there's kind of a bunch of, uh, bunch of interesting stuff. And there's been some research done on it. Uh, but like, you know, there's always the like post dive dive boat debate, you know, <laughs> when everyone climbs back on and talk <laughs> about it and everyone's just blown away and I want to be blown away. So I want to go there. Yeah, um, it's uh, a post, like I said, the link to an article about, about the dive site and it's be in the show notes. So I want to know if any of our listeners have been there or want to go there, reach out to me on our socials or an email dive in dot the podcast at gmail.com. Let me know if you've been there, how'd you get there? You know, my usual questions, how'd you get there? Where'd you stay? What was it like? It's expensive, all that kind of stuff. I want to know, uh, cause I got to do some planning, uh, cause I'm probably not <laughs> going to get to go dive the Erebus or anything like that. So I'll, uh, I'll just do some crazy <laughs> Japanese, uh, uh, diving on the, uh, on the Nuguni monument. So what do you guys think you want to go? Unreal. Mm, I would love to go. The visibility yeah. also looks fantastic. Pretty great. Yeah. It's yeah. cool. I would have a blast diving on that. I'm going with aliens, man. Uh, <laughs> Got to be aliens that uh, well, threw down on that. And uh, the other question I had, though, coming out of that picture, Justin, is that mm-hmm. guy in proper trim? I was just Person, about guy? to say, <laughs> oh, man, what, what do you think of, of that guy's trim in the photo? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not right here to trash anybody, but, uh, you know, feel free uh, to send us a note on whether or not you think that uh, <laughs> the trim is okay. And keeping in yeah. mind, this is not a trashing thing. This is just a discussion about trim. The person could have been looking up purposefully at one of the beautiful pieces of that structure. So let's not turn this into a diver Uh, bashing session, but rather just a question of is he in trim? Sorry, just to tie back, you know, just the narcissism of myself (laughs) there in my segment. To to trim or not to trim, that is the question. To trim or not to trim. Or not to trim. Mm -hmm. Or is it alien trim? Uh, Who knows? I don't know. Maybe that's actually an alien in the photo. It could be. Yeah. It's got very few bubbles. Actually, mm-hmm. I, um, I changed that to know. a lot of bubbles for somebody on a rebreather. Um, I was so. thinking that too, actually. I was eh, also maybe he's deflating that. his BCD as he uh, maybe. as he rises, true. and you know, That's true. look at me oh, being biased. Like you should just like <laughs> April. You should just like shut me down out of the show because I keep saying <laughs> he, and I'm trying to use like gender neutral yeah, pronoun and say it. they. And I do Gosh. apologize for that because you know uh, it's uh, terrible on my part, and I do apologize. Because uh, okay. I obviously don't know who that person is, so they are diving not in trim, but perhaps because they're looking up. Well, you you know that it's a he because they aren't in trim, and we know <laughs> right. any scuba girl would be in trim. So uh, yes. I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I get you. Speaking, speaking of uh, podcasts spinning out of control, yeah. um, ours. That does it for today's episode. I'm going to thank Brett for uh, joining us. It was a pleasure. Now no one else will ever join us because this is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to thank Nick for setting up that interview and doing a lot of legwork. Uh, Mitt, thank you as well. It was awesome. Uh, Brett was a fantastic guest. And yes, uh, of course, thanks again to Nick for finding another amazing guest and mm-hmm. uh, getting us uh, put off on the right direction. So sad that you missed this one, Nick. It was wicked. Yeah, and uh, it was uh, it was good. Uh, April and I were chatting earlier today, uh, and we, we realized uh, Nick is our podcast mom. Podcast mm. mom. Because uh, he keeps us in line, keeps us from talking about the weather, and keeps us from spinning out of control usually. <laughs> 
And look at what <laughs> and, happens. She's uh, not here today. And what are we doing? Yep. Oh, my Lord. Exactly. Spun out all of control. Talked yeah. about the weather. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All those I heard it's supposed to snow tomorrow. It oh is going God. to snow tomorrow. Or Better rain. Not. I don't know. I thought we could <laughs> do anyway. both. A little bit of both. Yeah. Could, could be snow than rain. That's the bad one. Uh, April, mm-hmm. thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And uh, it was an awesome episode. I really liked this one. And uh, I think we're hilarious. So well, we are. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. Yes. Agreed. Don't forget you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash dive in pod and get some fun rewards for doing so. You can also visit our website, diveinpod.com for all the links you need, episodes, merch, and so much more. On social media, I am at I dive okay. I'm at April Weikert, and you can find Nick at nicholaswinkler.com. Next week, we speak to Kirk Crack, a Canadian trailblazing freediver who founded Performance Freediving International and recently worked on the Avatar sequels. This episode of Dive in the Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Ray Scuba. Thanks for listening. 